Hey, it's episode 255 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show, the home of classic monsters, modern talk, and a whole bunch of apes. Okay, actually, only three of them, because this week on the podcast, we are talking about the third film and the Planet of the Apes series, Escape from Planet of the Apes. And I'm not doing it by myself. I'm being joined by Tracy Morris and Scott Morris. Oh, and we're being joined by the Shadow Waves. That's the music you're hearing right now. This is the song Peeping Bond. You can hear it on their album, Waves of Absolute Space Fire. You might run into the band if you're in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where they're based out of. Or you can look them up on the Shadow Waves bandcamp.com shadow waves is one word there's only one w in there or just go to monsterkidradio.net and follow the link in the show notes you'll hear the song in its entirety at the end of the show so like i said this week we're talking about escape from planet of the apes however before we get to that you know how in those old monster magazines the letters to the editor would always be at the very beginning of the magazine but we're going to do that with the feedback this time around we've got some feedback we're going to run it at the top of the show a couple weeks ago, we talked about the amazing 1951 film, The Thing from Another World. Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland and I talked about this movie. This is one of his absolute favorite films. I got to say, it's probably one of mine as well. And apparently, it's also a favorite of listener Tom V. He emailed us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com that he loves this film. Now, he comments on something that Chris and I talked about, and that was the conversation that Henry and Nikki are having about how they ran into each other the night before the whole thing starts. We talked about how they might have had a one-night stand. Well, Tom says he got the impression that there was no one-night stand. Henry passed out before he and Nikki could. I can buy that. He continues to say, The USAF crew, the United States Air Force crew, are still wearing WW2 or World War II-style uniforms. The blue USAF uniforms had started to replace the old Army Air Force uniforms by 1949-1950. These uniforms were so tight that if Henry farted, Sergeant Bob would break wind. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Military formality was very lax because you know this crew had been together for a while. The bit players all had great lines. One was George Fenneman from You Bet Your Life. This film should be studied. I agree with you. This film has got a lot going for it. It's a great story. But in terms of filmmaking, the technique, the way the script is put together, the way the script is performed, the acting, the music. Oh, man, the music. And then you start talking about things like the uniforms they're wearing and the portrayal of the military, science versus government. It's just really a fascinating film. Tom wasn't the only person to think that. We also had somebody call our voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-M. K-R. I'm going to go ahead and play that voicemail right now. Hey, Derek. My name is Daniel Perry. been listening for about a year and a half. Monster Kid Radio knocked it out of the park with the thing from another world. Just a great conversation about my favorite sci-fi movie. Uh, you and Chris McMillan just hit on all sorts of great stuff. This movie, it made me the monster kid I am. I saw it in second grade at a uh, second grade elementary school Halloween costume party uh, shebang. And they did two uh, movies that night. They showed the uh, Blackhawks film, uh, short film version of Thing from Another World, and The Incredible Shrinking Man. Incredible Shrinking Man was good, but man, it just sealed the deal when the thing started. That opening credit shot just had me glued to my chair and eating on popcorn and Halloween candy and 
dressed as a mad scientist. It it sealed the deal for me as being a monster kid. Uh, just a great episode. I look forward to every episode that comes on, and I look forward to hearing more. Uh, from Monster Kid Radio. You guys have a great one. Bye. Hey, thanks for calling in, Daniel. And yeah, I could totally see this movie having that effect. This is so good. I mean, come on. Chris said it. I said it. Tom V said it. People said it on Facebook. This is one of the best science fiction films. Keep watching the skies, man. This movie really did it for me, too. And I can imagine seeing this in grade school, in a school auditorium. I mean, that... Wow, at a school assembly with a bunch of kids seeing this movie with The Incredible Shrinking Man. It's a heck of a double feature. I could see this one definitely being the one to push you into monster kiddom, though, of course. It's just so, so good. Thank you for listening, and thank you for calling in. Hey, Derek, Steve Sullivan here. Just calling in to say hi. You know, I enjoy this show so much, I really should call more often, so I'm going to try to do that a little more often. All you other folks out there that are liking Monster Kid Radio... Hey, give him a call. Keep Derek company. I wanted to thank people for the kind words that they said about Yang Gari that uh, you and I did together, as well as the other kaiju films. I'm really glad that the fans enjoyed those a lot. I really loved your Christopher Mim, John Agar episode. I'm a big fan of Christopher's. I've got all his films, and, and you probably might have guessed that I'm a big fan of his because I do the Canoe Cops versus the Mummies serial every month on his podcast, and that's also being featured on my Patreon page, CushingHorrors.com now, to which you probably noticed. Anyway, since you guys did your top three Agar films, I figured I would do a top three Agar films. I looked online for lists to help me out, just to see if there was a complete list of Agar's fantasy sci-fi films, and there, there really didn't seem to be an easily definable one, although... The uh, Dr. Gangrene has a top ten agar film, so that that was really helpful and reminded me of a couple of things I hadn't seen. But I'm afraid I'm not going to completely tread new ground here. Number three, I would go with Attack of the Puppet People, I think. But I think maybe Christopher picked that, so to have at least one different thing on my list, I guess I'll go with Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. Number two, very obvious, Tarantula. Great film. Love Tarantula. Who doesn't love Tarantula? But I love one even more. Actually, I love two even more. But number one on my list is going to be The Mole People, which I think is just terrific end-to-end, except for the very, very ending of it, which obviously the studio did something really strange and screwed it up. But aside from that moment at the end, I love The Mole People. I love the monsters. I love everything about it. And the really obvious thing that is not on my list, because it's disqualified, because it would be the top of my list and the top of every list, is any creature from the Black Lagoon film. So really, if you want to be technical about it, then uh, Revenge of the Creature is number one. But like I said, the creature films are disqualified because they would just be at the top of pretty much every list I made. So anyway, my number one, The Mole People. I hope you guys have enjoyed that too. Again, keep up the great work. It's a great show, and I will try to be calling in more often. Everybody, call Derek. Drop him an email. Keep him company. He's doing great work out here, and he needs to hear from you. Steve Sullivan signing off. Talk to you soon. Bye. Steve, always good to hear from you, man. Even when you're not a guest on the show, I'd love to have you call in. With your list of your top three Agar films, those are good films. The Mole People, you know, every John Agar film is good, right? I mean, 
It's John Agar. The Mole People is solid, though. The Tarantula is fantastic. You know, he just just doesn't deliver a bad movie when it comes to science fiction films. Science fiction and horror films are made better by John Agar's presence. But you're right. Creature from the Black Lagoon films trump everything, at least at Monster Kid Radio Central. And listeners, like he said, you can look him up over at CushingHorrors.com to learn more about what he's got going on, his Patreon project right now, putting out short story installments, the Canoe Cops versus the Mummy. He's got other things in the hopper as well. I can't wait to see what's going to be coming next. Go check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. I mean, because that's what we do around here. Listeners, if you want to write in or call in about anything that we've talked about here on the show in the past, well... You can email us or leave us a voicemail. I'll go over that contact information again at the end of the show. But first, we're going to get to talking about the third film in the Planet of the Apes saga, Escape from Planet of the Apes, with my dear friends, Tracy Morris and Scott Morris. They're the two head muckety-mucks from the Disney Indiana podcast. Scott's also a co-host of mine over at 1951 Down Place, and they're both monster kids through and through. We'll get to them right after this. And watch out, plenty of spoilers about this film and all the others, at least all the others so far. Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, yearning for love and discovering on the eve of her marriage the monstrous inheritance that was her birthright of fear. Oh, I still shudder when I recall that face. Like some perverted mask of evil out of a legend of horror. Then, then you saw him as Hyde? Once, at the very last, just before the mob caught him. They almost tore him to pieces. The villagers broke into this tomb and drove a stake through his heart. Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, terrified that she become the disfigured thing that was her father. A vampire drawing sustenance from bestiality. stake and drive it through my heart and bury me beside my father. Well, do it! Do I have to kill myself? If you love me, please kill me! C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. 
So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Honeydew. Podcast. Syndrome. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. <laughs> Welcome to an evening with Karloff, the master of menace in five fright-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. <laughs> it's only a gallon bowls, the raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead, Black Sabbath. Chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die. Laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos' creepiest capers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. Well, listeners, in order to save a little bit of money, we're going to trim the budget of our coverage of the Planet of the Apes films by only having three podcasters or apes talking about this film. And we're going to set it in modern day, I don't know, L.A. Well, neither one of us are in L.A. But, okay, you know what, never mind. It's Escape from Planet of the Apes. (laughs) It's me, joined by Scott Morris. And Tracy Morris is joining us for this film. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. First time for both of you in 2016. I believe so. I can't remember the last time I was on this show, and it doesn't look like you've cleaned up after Casey was here. Well, you know, he, he kind of brings a certain beardedness <laughs> where he goes. And, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, an ambiance. Oh, boy. So, Escape from the... Man, you guys could have warned me. What fun is that? <laughs> so, listeners, uh, if you are just now joining us for our Planet of the Apes coverage, last year, Scott and I watched the first few Planet of the Apes films, and it was the first time for me. I had never seen these films, which I know makes me kind of a bad monster kid, but we're correcting that. Scott is taking me by the ape hand through the entire franchise. We're doing the five films. We're probably going to talk about the TV show, maybe even dance around the cartoon and then culminate the whole thing in a giant roundtable discussion with Scott and Tracy and a few other people I have in mind. This is the third film in the franchise. Tracy's joining us because this is a particular favorite of hers. It certainly is. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're sick. (laughs) (laughs) And you're still one up on me in the whole ape thing because you have had the opportunity to see Planet of the Apes on the big screen, the original. I have. And it was awesome. Which, listeners, if you remember the last couple times I was on here, I was really looking forward to uh, finally getting to see Planet of the Apes last October. But unfortunately, an upper respiratory infection knocked me out and I was not able to go and see that. But uh, thanks to Fathom Events, I'm going to have another shot this July. You know, I made a couple of calls. I called Fathom. I was like, you know what? Scott's doing me a solid. He's walking me through these films. It'd be really nice if you could bring Planet of the Apes to the big screen for him. And they said, you know what? If it's Scott, we'll do it. (laughs) 
So July 24th. Uh, which uh, I believe is a Sunday. They're going to show it at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time of the theater. And then uh, again on Wednesday, the 27th, they're going to have an encore presentation in the evening. Uh, it will have a exclusive commentary from uh, Turner Classic Movies host Ben Mankiewicz, and he'll give an inside look at the film. So check out uh, Fathom Events and search for Planet of the Apes to find a theater near you that's showing it. I know I'm going to be uh, heading to the theater if my lungs will allow me. Fathomevents.com. Just do a search for Planet of the Apes. It's right there. And Scott and Tracy are going to go. I'm assuming it's going to be playing in your neck of the woods. You won't have to travel too far. Yes, it will be playing uh, right here in um, uh, Disney, Indiana. Right on. And I believe it's also going to be playing near me up here in Oregon. So you can expect us to talk about it more as we get closer to it. I'd love to do a big fan gathering for this. If there's anybody in the area who wants to see Planet of the Apes with me, stay tuned. Uh, Well, and stay tuned if you want to see it with Scott and Tracy. That's right. We'll talk about it on Facebook, too. It'll be all over. We won't shut up about it because I'm excited to see it again. And I'm excited to finally get to see it on the big screen. This is Dr. Zira, her loving husband, Cornelius, and little Milo. The most dangerous to man is little Milo. Why? The time is 1973. The place is right here on Earth. How did they get here? What is their reception? Welcome, gentlemen, to the United States. Escape from the planet of the apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new, astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. We'll take the female first. Well, she seems to be pretty smart. All right, we'll go for the banana. Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. I don't believe it. Sarah, are you mad? Till we know who our friends are and who our enemies... And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. The president convenes a special board of inquiry. Have you a name? Zero. Does the other one talk? Only when she lets me. (laughs) Embraced by our civilization, the nation gives them a hero's welcome. Address, please. The zoo. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Well, it's sort of uh, like grape juice plus. How is that? Very wet. It's certainly the most incredible story this reporter has ever covered. And you share the impact of every incredible moment. Must have been the shock. Shock my foot. I'm pregnant. The president's chief advisor wants them murdered, or else the human race cannot survive. The escape. The birth of an infant who could threaten man's very existence. You're the second human I've kissed. You are the first. The Relentless Chase. The Stunning Climax. Zero. I 
want that baby. If he won't give it to me, I'll shoot. Why was Washington thrown into a turmoil by this one baby? Stop him! Escape from the planet of the apes. But I think it's time we set our way back machine to 1971 or 1973, one of those two years. Uh, the film came out in 71, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, but it takes place in 1973. I guess you're right, huh? I didn't really notice a big, ooh, it's the future kind of vibe, so I didn't even pick up on that. But now that you say that, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that they would have set it just a little bit in the future. Well, they had to. Because if you go back to the first Planet of the Apes, I believe that um, Taylor's rocket ship left in 1971. I mean, excuse me, 72. So they couldn't have it in modern day 71. But doesn't the timeline get a little wonky? It gets a lot wonky. So, <laughs> <laughs> Because I am coming to this movie with the benefit of knowing that this is the middle of the franchise. There are other films coming I wasn't necessarily shocked by, hey, there's three ape astronauts or apenauts. But I imagine it might have been a shock for first time viewers when this was first on the big screen. Well, there's one thing, seeing this is your first time watching it, mm-hmm. before you put the disc in the in the player, knowing what you know, having seen beneath the planet of the apes, where they basically destroy the earth and all characters from the film, spoiler alert. I was going to say spoiler. (laughs) That's a big one. Yes. How did you think they were going to continue the series? I had no idea. I really didn't. I I was eager to get into it and check it out and see how they were going to do it. But I think as soon as I saw the the spaceship and the apronauts, I was like, well, that's that's probably it. There's some apes on board. And boy, I really hope it's Cornelius. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how would you like to have been in screenwriter Paul Dean's chair when he gets a telegram from Fox right after the release of Beneath the Planet of the Apes that just was four words long. Apes exist, sequel required. After he had been under strict orders not to produce a sequel. Just imagine him sitting in his office, throwing the telegram up in the air. Now you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think he came up with a very clever way of bringing the Apes franchise back. No, I agree. And, you know, I can't help but think a little bit about how the X-Men franchise is now, you know, for a contemporary series where you've got this weird time travel stuff happening that may or may not kind of undo or start the elements from the previous films and that sort of thing. I mean, this was happening back in the 70s, and I thought it was clever, you know, the way they, they brought them in. I mean, time travel's a thing in this universe, in this world of the apes, so why not? Well, bringing them back to modern times was also a big budget reason to do that. Sure. Because you had alluded to it earlier, they cut the budget again almost in half from uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes for Escape from the Planet of the Apes. So being able to film in then-modern-day Los Angeles saved them a lot of money uh, set that they didn't need. And and as many uh, people dressed up in ape costumes and ape makeup, they saved a lot of money there. And pretty quickly, they uh, cut their ape makeup budget by a third. You know, I watched the, what is it, like a 15-minute little featurette on the blu-ray and they were talking about that that they got into the production and it's like oh hey yeah we're gonna pull a little bit more money from your budget yeah (laughs) how do you do that i don't don't understand with a science fiction film although this isn't nearly as epic so i suppose maybe they could see they could cut a few costs if they can save some money by shooting at the la zoo or something like that you know even though it's got a lower budget i feel like the storytelling is still really strong it doesn't feel like they were just kind of going through the motions The first half of this film gives me a strong feeling uh, for the original Pierre Buell novel. 
if anybody's read the uh, novel for uh, Planet of the Apes, the ape civilization that our astronauts visit is a modern-day civilization. So there's apes driving cars, there's apes in suits, there's apes flying helicopters. And seeing Cornelius in Zira in Los Angeles and wearing human clothes really gave me a flashback to that original novel. I was going to ask you about that because I think we had talked a little bit about the novel before being a more contemporary style, basically real world, just apes instead of men mm-hmm. wandering around. I like seeing Cornelius and Zira walking around in their modern duds, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But I did miss having a bunch of apes, and I missed having a – you know, what was the guy's name? What's the gorilla's name for the Beneath that we both really liked? Uh, General Ursus. Yeah. What, what, I, I missed having the angry Ursus type running around just because I liked Ursus. Well, you didn't have any of the orangutans or no. the gorillas. You just had the three chimpanzees. Three. So we mentioned Cornelius and Zira. Who's the third? Dr. Milo. Played by Sal Minio. Wow. <laughs> So they explain, yeah. yeah, they bring him in because he's the one that basically salvaged the Liberty One and figured out how it worked. And so he was the one that rescued Cornelius and Zira and got them all off planet. Unfortunately, we don't get to spend a lot of time with Dr. Milo. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, he was. it almost feels like he exists just for this one purpose. Right. Yeah, there had been rumors. Uh, I don't know if you caught any of these uh, in the in the documentaries, but Sal Minio, uh, once he got into the eight makeup, he did suffer some severe panic attacks brought on by the claustrophobia, excuse me, by his claustrophobia. Roddy McDowell stated in the Behind the Planet of the Apes documentary that aired on AMC TV in 1998 that he saw terror in Sal's eyes. Uh, once he had the makeup on. And uh, he actually warned the director. And uh, Kim Hunter stated in that same documentary that uh, they had to hug Sal a lot. And it was very <laughs> difficult for him being confined in the appliances, and he wasn't comfortable at all being a chimpanzee. In the documentary that's on the Blu-ray, Kim Hunter's son mentions that she also had some claustrophobia issues, and she had some difficulty with you know, how long it took to get into the makeup and how long it took to get out of the makeup. I think she does an even better job in this film acting through and with the chimpanzee makeup than even in the first film. I agree. I think Kim Hunter is clearly comfortable in the role and is not just going through the paces. She's still finding things to do, new and interesting things to do as Zira. She's not just like, oh, well, you know, I'm putting on the skin again. I'm moving on. She's still working real hard to make this such a unique lovable, huggable character. I don't want Kim Hunter to give me a bunch of hugs in that makeup. This is her film. Yes. Yeah. And she yeah, and she's not just a lovable, huggable ape woman. I mean she also is a very strong, very determined she is going to get what she needs. Well that's one of the neat things about science fiction films. You really start to see this in the seventies with uh the commentary that Filmmakers and storytellers can kind of weave into some of the sci-fi films. So you've got Zira as a strong, dominant woman. Yeah, she's lovable. I, I want to hang out with her. She's great. Oh, yeah. But there's also the bit where she's talking to the woman's club and she's very assertive and she's the one in charge. And it's nice to see these things kind of woven through mm-hmm. this story, especially with her. Well, you have the scene with the presidential commission when they ask Cornelius if he could speak, <laughs> and he, he, he delivers the line only when she lets me. And, yeah, it's 
comedic in uh, in nature there, but I just have a feeling there's a little bit of a bit of truth behind that in their relationship. Well, she's the one that took the entire initiative at starting to interact with the humans. She's the one that stepped up to do the little test with the blocks. She's the one that climbed up the stairs to stare at the banana that she chose not to eat because she loathes bananas. I did like that a lot. I liked her. You nailed it. This is her film. This is her story. Roddy McDowell's Cornelius is great. He's fun. I, yes. I've always... I mean, from the beginning, I love this character, and I love Roddy playing the character more than that other guy. But um, this is Zira's film. It's Zira's film, really, but Cornelius kind of has an incredibly powerful moment in the last five minutes of the film. No, that's not to take anything away from what Cornelius is right. doing here. He's got his moments, too. Just if I were to, you know, if I were to pin this story on somebody, I think it lives and dies on Zero. Oh yeah, very much so. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> oh, why'd I have to go there? I write it all down. Now. <laughs> Scott, you and I talked at one point. It might have even been while you were up here visiting about the portrayal of the president in this film. Yeah, I know that. Uh, uh, and, and Tracy actually mentioned it last night while we were rewatching it. Is how intelligent and caring the president seems to be when we're watching a lot of films now the president sometimes or more times than not is portrayed as an uncaring or calculating character and it's a little odd to see him being this type of president this type of person but one thing that you have to remember this film was made before watergate just before just before watergate Watergate. where people started to have distrust in the head office in the man in the man you have the scientist that's actually kind of wants to go after them where the president is trying to get him to, to cool his heels and look at this more logically. I thought that was fascinating and refreshing because, like you said, a lot of movies that we watch now, you know, the government's not to be trusted. You know, this William Wyndham playing the president is so – he gets it. And I, he understands, you know, this is not something we need to manipulate and cover up. I mean, we're – I'm a good dude, you know, and I, I really liked him. I wish he was running today. I'd vote for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he does make reference to being, and you know, this is something that's going to be long after our administration. So he still is thinking of it in political terms, but he's giving a sense of humanity to mm-hmm. the role of the president as well. Right. And there, there is one comment about how he would be very unpopular if something were to happen to the apes, if they were to do something to the apes. And I'm sure that's something every president who wants to potentially run again wants to keep in mind. But still, he seemed to be more about progress and what's good for humanity, not just the country, but humanity overall. I liked that a lot. It was very refreshing because I watched so many movies where it's post-Watergate. And it's a really good point. I wish I would have gotten a better feel for what Dr. Haslin's motivations are towards the apes. I mean, there's a lot of fear there. Uh, Eric Braden played Dr. Haslin, and he, he's our foil. He's our antagonist. There's fear, but even when I was watching it and the final thing happens, it's like you didn't change anything. You didn't stop anything. Well, he doesn't know that. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know that, but I mean, he's supposed to be a doctor, a scientist. He's supposed to be the smart guy, right? Right. I think his his emotions took over his logical side of the brain. And I mean, there's a great scene between him and the president where they bring up the famous time travel, would you go back and kill baby Hitler? Which is one of my favorite scenes of this entire film. 
mm-hmm. because the president he's like, where, where do you stop? Do you mm-hmm. do you kill him as a baby? Do you go back to get his mother? Do you go back to get his ancestors? Where does it? Where do you draw the line? But Haslin is just he sees this immediate threat and wants to take it out. To me, if this was a modern day film, he would be the military. He wouldn't be a scientist, right? Because he acts more like a military person would. I, I agree. There are a couple of scientists in this film, or doctors at least, that you know are on the side of good, I suppose you could say. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Most of the scientists, most of the people working with Haslin in a modern-day film, they'd be wearing the uniform, have the five-star general outfit going. You know, we've got to take him out. And for some reason or other, I'm flashing to the, uh, what's the actress name in Mars Attacks. We have to take him out now! You know? <laughs> You know, that, that's exactly what this guy would have been in a modern day film. And I wonder, you know, as the modern franchise continues, if we're going to see more and more of that. But that's another conversation about another movie. <laughs> now, you had mentioned two other scientists that were basically the ape's friends. Uh, got Dr. Lewis Dixon and Dr. Stephanie uh, Branton. Uh, what did you think of those two characters? They were played by Bradford Dillman and Natalie Trundy, respectively. And I liked them. I mean, I knew the apes were going to need an ally. And I appreciated their relationship with the apes. Stevie, Dr. Branton, Stephanie Branton seemed a little underdeveloped. But overall, I liked them. Did you recognize uh, Stephanie Branton, the actress? Um She's in Beneath the Planet really? of the Apes as well. She is the mutant female that they run into that ends up uh, killing herself in the bathtub. It's oh. The same, it's the same actress. Wow. And we'll see her again in future films. Oh, really? As an ape or a human? As an ape. Wow. So you'll hear her. You'll hear her, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. I wish they had done a little bit more with Dr. Branton. She, uh, she yeah. definitely felt like the the sidekick, these kind of maybe the stand-in for the audience in some respect. But Dr. Dixon, at the very beginning, he has kind of an attitude, very condescending, but then again, not knowing anything about Cornelius and Zira and Milo. You know, when he gets out the blocks, you know, he puts out a blue block, pulls down the shade, puts a couple more blocks on it, and then lifts the shade back up. And she just kind of rolls her eyes and points to the blue one like, yeah, that's the one that was there before. But you'd think if you saw apes wearing clothing and responding, obviously, to any comments you make, you, you put two and two together a little more quickly. They were flying yes. a spaceship. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure they know what the blue blocks and, look like. And Tracy brought this up last night after we finished watching it. And there is a, a line dropped that they, the humans thought the spaceship was just on autopilot and that the apes didn't know how they got there. Oh, So from... Dr. Lewis Dixon's point of view, he's just looking at apes that may be slightly more intelligent than the ones he's used to, but he doesn't know the extent of their their intelligence. So he's doing these tests to try to get a baseline. And, you know, Tracy said that he's, he's sort of a jerk to them and didn't quite, you know, how did, why did um, Zira and Cornelius trust him so quickly? But the one thing that you've got to realize that Zira... And Dr. Dixon were both psychologists. And I really believe that Zira could understand the tests that Dixon was running and understand why he was running them. True. So that's how they got a relationship going because they were, she could see that he, they weren't 
trying to harm them. They were just trying to understand. Right. I I would agree with that. In fact, it would be interesting. Now I kind of want to go back and see Planet of the Apes and see what kind of tests, if any. I don't remember what tests she ran on Taylor. But I do wonder if Cornelius and Zira and Milo, what kinds of discussions they had off screen that made them decide not to communicate right away. That, again, seemed a little unclear why they chose to present themselves as mute. Well, I think they were all the filmmakers were also repeating some of the the highlights from the very first film where you've got the the apes and the humans instead of the humans and the apes where Taylor couldn't speak right away. So we had some of those scenes where he couldn't speak. And I think they were trying to mimic some of that. I I would agree with that. I can see that. I think it's an interesting kind of reflection and role reversal. And I do appreciate through the first three films, you do get to see Zira kind of go through the same journey, you know, realizing that some humans are not just these animals who can't speak. She kind of shifts her way of thinking all through the entire series so far. Well, I guess through the end of her role in the series. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, you, you do get to see that happen. And I did appreciate that. But I liked him. I mean, I, I liked him a lot. I wish we'd seen more with mm-hmm. Stevie. I may be speaking from a place of arrogance. I may even end up or not arrogance, I'm sorry, ignorance, and may even be cutting this comment <laughs> when I do the edit of this. But again, it's the 70s, and I want to go back to the whole, we can weave some elements, some commentary into your storytelling. Even just calling her Stevie versus Stephanie, a, a slightly masculinized version of her name, I wonder, are, are they trying to say something here regarding the roles of the sexes? Because you've got that big, obvious bit with Zira mm-hmm. in the woman's meeting. I don't know. Derek, I think you make an interesting point that perhaps to be a little more respected, she has taken on, you know, like you said, a more masculine sounding nickname. To be taken more seriously by her co-workers. Right. And the government. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the very first scene of the film where the uh, the spaceship has been pulled onto uh, the beach there. And at the time, we don't know who's in there, but the astronauts get out did you feel that that was going to be a, a, a fake out? Did you think that was humans in there at all, seeing this was the first time you saw it? You know, like I said, I feel like I came to this knowing we're in the middle of a franchise and obviously something's going to happen. And the title is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I, I kind of assumed it was going to be the apes. I didn't realize it was going to be our apes, you know, Zero and Cornelius. But I, I wasn't really faked out by it. I just kind of expected it, I think. Well, I think the studio was trying to go for a little bit of a fake out there because Mm -hmm. there is a scene in the original script that was actually partially filmed that was supposed to go before this scene. And uh, it would have been the three apes in the spaceship watching the destruction of Earth. There's actually pictures that have surfaced of the set of the interior of the spaceship and the three apenots sitting in the in the set, but there's never been a release of that of that footage. And Kim Hunter was actually quoted in Apes Fan Magazine's special edition in 1999, saying, "I think they just cut it. I think we did that. And as I recall, I remember the shots inside, not a full shit, but the shots that they took. And I guess they decided to cut, which probably made sense. Didn't they also do a comic book adaptation that included that sequence? Yes, Marvel uh, did a comic book a- adaptation of Escape that was based upon the original script. 
And in the comic book, uh, there's actually some of the lines. You've, you've got Cornelius uh, saying, we've made it. Milo saying, so far. But one thing's for certain. Whoever wins the war, there'll be no place on Earth for us. So Zira says, where are we going? Milo says, probably to our death, but just possibly. And then that's where the Earth explodes. And Milo continues, the fools, they finally destroyed themselves. Cornelius, my God, the Earth is no more. Zira says, we've escaped, and Milo says, we have, if we survive the shockwave. I like that uh, echo, the fools, they finally destroyed themselves. Yes. Yep. God damn you! <laughs> <laughs> There's a book that I really enjoy called The Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes. I want that book so bad, but I, I don't want it until I've seen the films. <laughs> it's written uh, by Andrew Gaska. And it attempts to fill in the gaps in the ape's timeline between the films and between different scenes. And there's a section in there that revolves around Dr. Milo and how the apes were able to escape from the planet of the apes. Okay. Uh, Now, in the story, Dr. Milo was part of an expedition into the Forbidden Zone during the events of the first film. His team finds the Liberty One spaceship. I guess it didn't actually sink in that lake or it washed upon shore or something. Now, along the way, he actually encounters John Landon. Now, John Landon was one of the three original astronauts that survived the landing in the first film. Oh, okay. Now, he was also the one that became lobotomized later Mm -hmm. on in the film. Now, Landon tells Milo about their mission that they were on, and then Milo becomes obsessed with space travel after hearing all this. And so after the events of the first film, he goes back to the Forbidden Zone against orders— and retrieves the ship and begins to fix it and learning everything he can about it. As the war begins during the events of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Milo recruits uh, Zira and Cornelius to leave with him aboard the Liberty One. Now, if you remember from the first film, the ship was designed for computer control while the team uh, inside was in suspended animation. Right. So when Dr. Milo launches Liberty One and engages the photo propulsion drive, the return-to-Earth part of the spaceship's programming is engaged, and it heads straight back on the return path and right into the path of the original time-traveling Liberty One with Heston's crew in it. Oh. Both ships see each other on radar, but mistake the readings for false echoes because it reads itself in its own path. So it doesn't do any maneuvers to try to avoid it, and the two collide. And that's what causes Heston's ship to crash on the Planet of the Apes in the first place— thus setting up a giant time paradox. Huh. Pretty awesome fan theory, huh? I love it. See, I love this stuff, though. And I love time travel stories anyway. So, wow. I I want that book. But again, I want to wait till I see the films because I suspect it's going to spoil. The book is very good. I highly recommend it. If you're a fan of the Planet of the Apes series, especially the uh, original five, it doesn't really go uh, past that. Yeah, highly recommend the book. And it's got some gorgeous uh, artwork in it as well. Wow. But yeah, that's that's one of my favorite parts of this book is basically setting up this time paradox between the two Liberty Ones. Well, the single Liberty One that became two, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not Baby Milo in 1973 that actually begins everything. It's, huh. Well, it's another Milo, I suppose. <laughs> no comment. Huh. Oh no. <laughs> we have Oh no. We have two more movies to get through. <laughs> There's somebody else in the cast I want to talk about. Who's that? Welcome to Fantasy Island. <laughs> um I want to talk about oh, Khan! Ricardo Montocan. 
Armando, the friendly circus owner. He is oh. he is so much fun in this film. So over the top and I love it. Yeah, he, he doesn't have a very large role, but the role he has, he inhabits in a large way. Oh, he makes it large. <laughs> He's fantastic. Oh, wow. He's so much fun. Now, the, the stereotypical circus owner isn't necessarily, at least now, thanks to PETA videos and things like that, isn't necessarily um, one who really cares about the animals. But this guy does. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, they're, they're like his family, for crying out loud. He refers to uh, one of the baby chimps that the doctor helped deliver as his godson or godchild. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's very um, compassionate toward his menagerie of animals. And wow, he's just great. I love him. I would like to know how far back that relationship with him and Stevie and Lewis goes. And I would just like to hang out with the three of them over dinner one night. <laughs> well, uh, Stevie and Lewis are both basically psychologists, animal psychologists, animal vets. And so I think they dropped a line somewhere along the way that they traveled to carnivals and zoos and circuses. Probably to check on the welfare to check on of the, the animals. Welfare. So that's probably where they met. And he does such a good job caring for his animals that that's probably what sparked the friendship. And that's why they go f- to him for help later in the film. He's great. <laughs> I just want to go to that circus and hang out with him. The animals can do their thing. I just want to hang out with Armando. <laughs> want him to tell me stories about the first chimpanzee born in captivity. It's actually not true. Well, the first one in a circus. Well, okay. Yes, we have the paperwork. It's all been signed. I just love how he goes on and on just keeping those cops busy. Yeah, comparing it to what the first fish born on land. On land. And- <laughs> now, even though I haven't seen the film uh, or this entire franchise, this is my first time viewing for me. I know that, our, or at least I know Ricardo Montalban does turn up again. And I know that because I remember staring at the VHS box art way back in the day when I worked in a store called Real Collections, which was kind of a knockoff Suncoast. We had those on the shelf. And I remember always trying to figure out what order the movies were supposed to go in when I was putting them on the shelf and kind of cleaning up a little bit. And I remember Ricardo being on the cover of one of the box arts, and it wasn't this one. So I know he turns up again, right? Armando uh, will return in Conquest, the fourth film. Oh, he's even the same guy. Yep. I suppose it would be really hard to kind of bury him in another role because he's so <laughs> <laughs> so big. There's three people from this film that uh, will continue on. And we've already mentioned Natalie Trundy uh, will return, Ricardo Montavon will return, and so will Roddy. Really? Yep. How? Yeah, as watch the, the movie, Derek. I was going to say, the old time life is read the book. No, watch the movie. <laughs> Speaking of Roddy, can we talk about how it ends? Sure. Your show. <laughs> oh, man. Do you, do you want to talk about how it ends or how it was supposed to end? Oh, is there a difference? Uh, well, the outcome is the same, but how it was going to happen oh, was a little different. This is pretty brutal. Well, the, the uh, other outcome would have been a little more brutal. <laughs> I don't know how. It would have involved dogs, attack oh dogs. Oh, my God. Seriously? Seriously, yes. The original script. What was wrong with people in the 70s? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would have been ripped up. Mm. That would be terrible. How can you? I mean, seeing the baby getting shot was bad enough. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, I'll make sure there's a warning at the beginning of the show. <laughs> what amazes me. The whole time, earlier I mentioned that uh, there's a really uh, amazing role reversal for Roddy at the end of this film. Mm -hmm. 
even through the, the previous two movies, Roddy is a pacifist. He doesn't fight. Chimpanzees are pacifists. It's, it's true, but he specifically mentions it a couple times in this film. But then when it comes to his family, that's where the line is drawn. He you know, fights back against the orderly in the, and then at the end gets a gun and turns it on a guy. So that's an amazing turn for him. Yeah. Well, with the orderly, he didn't mean, I wouldn't say he fought with the orderly. No, he, but he attacked more, him. Yeah. It was more just out of frustration and, and anger. He did not mean to kill him. Certainly. It was like reflexive, kind of a reflexive right. action. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Don't call me monkey. Yeah. It's and, offensive yeah. <laughs> to us. And, and the, the orderly was actually, I thought being fairly respectful. He called them sir and ma'am. And, you know, other than the little slip with using the term monkey, I thought he was treating them like they were just other people. Yes, but Cornelius just had gotten Zira back and gone and hearing everything that had been done, the truth serum, injecting his pregnant wife. Mm -hmm. And he He just couldn't take it anymore. He he lashed out against that orderly. And again, we go back that this is all Haslin's doing. He's the one that gets Zira. Well, first he gets Zira drunk on Grape Juice Plus. (laughs) <laughs> and gets her to make some confessions that she and Cornelius hadn't really intended to make, and then manages to talk even Dr. Dixon into kind of supervising this whole, well, let's juice him up with uh, truth serum and see what happens. Well, it was a presidential order at that point. Yeah. But Dixon just kind of, I mean, yes, he wanted to stay there and observe to help, you know, make sure that nothing terrible happened to Zira. Well, he, he he did finally stop the whole thing right before she revealed that Taylor had died. Now, he knew yeah. that already. Yeah, he yeah. knew that already. Zira and Cornelius end up trusting Dixon and Branton well enough that they provide some additional information on what happened to Taylor and what happened to the world, in fact. I thought it was interesting, again, that Cornelius and Zira, what information they chose to share, what information they chose not to share, and at what points. True. I did struggle a little bit with pregnant Zira. Let's get her drunk and pump her full of truth meds. And smoke in front of her. Yeah. Remember, (laughs) this was the 70s. Yeah, it's a different time. Every time I see this film, I always think back to myself. The Presidential Commission and Hassline, everybody's asking, you know, what happened to Charlton Heston's character? But nobody is asking what happened to Brent. You know, or the other people that were with Charlton Heston in the first True. film. And that's something that I struggled with in the last film, too, is that the only humans they refer to are the big names, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Charlton Heston. <laughs> the other the other guys, you know, the girl that came along with them, nope, nobody even brings them up. Yep. Well, I know the second ship is mentioned very early in the film, but then you hear no more about that mission in right. this one. Presumably the screenwriter figured... The audience members are only going to remember Charlton Heston's character anyway, so. True. You were talking about the violent ending of the film. <laughs> you, want, you wanted to talk a little bit about that? What a downer. I mean, is. the movie's got all these kind of warm moments. Yeah, there's always this threat of menace. And ultimately, I'm sure things are going to go bad. I mean, there's always that in the back of your head. But there's still, there's a lot of lighthearted moments, like fish, fish out of water type moments. Yeah. I, I was, I'm struggling. I don't want to use the word comedic because it's not like, ha ha, you know, slap your knee, ha ha, funny. But, you know, it's it's kind of light and fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love the bit where Zira and Cornelius are out clothes shopping. I love that. And, and it's the way so they, adorable. Yeah, the way they show off for each other. 
mm-hmm. and just they, they dote on each other. I think that's the word we've been looking for. Zira and Cornelius dote on each other. There you go. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's one scene that I so wish they would have filmed. Mm. Because you've got, the, you've got the scene there at night where Cornelius is watching the late local news. And the announcer's talking about all the different things that the, they did. And they're scheduled for tomorrow. And Cornelius is scheduled to visit Disneyland to christen the new Jungle Cruise boat. (laughs) I so wanted them to film that. (laughs) That would have been awesome. So we we just need to write a fanfic with that scene in it. There you go. There you go. But then near the end of the film, Dr. Hasline is convinced that the baby must be destroyed. He actually wants to destroy all three of them. Right. But the president has... And the commission has said, we're going to abort or kill the baby and then basically neuter Cornelius and Zira. But, because uh, they've captured the attention of the public, and it'd be kind of hard to explain their disappearance. Yes. But the One, public doesn't know she's pregnant. Right. And once uh, Zira and Cornelius discover what's going on, they make a break for it. Doc, and this is Dr. Hasselin's passion just taking over because he personally goes after them. And catches up with them on an old derelict ship in the harbor, trying to get to the baby. He he catches up with Zira, shoots Zira, who drops the baby wrapped up in blankets, and then Hasline basically empties the gun into the baby, which is into the blankets. Into the blankets. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't get two. Yeah, yeah, but still. Well, originally the film was supposed to end with Hasline trying to take them out and guard dogs at the um, harbor would have ended up taking them all out and ripping them to shreds. Which that would was have the given the movie script. a much harder rating. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. What was this rated? Do you G. It up here? Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, ratings board. <laughs> then but and I, now. <laughs> yeah. But then Cornelius, who's got, he's way up high in the ship, sees all of this, sees the, the shooting going on. And I think that's what, you know, the fact that he's been this pacifist the whole time, but he finally draws the gun that he'd gotten from uh, Dr. Dixon and uh, takes out Hasline, shoots him. And in the process, gets shot, falls to the deck of the ship. Which is a pretty violent drop. I don't know. Did you watch that drop closely? It's something you don't see normally. You don't see the body actually hit things in, in most modern movies. I was surprised because it, it was well done. Yes. I can't tell. Was it a stunt person? Was it a dummy? Whatever it was they did, I'd have to go back and watch it again, even though it's a hard scene to watch. Yeah. It was well done. When the legs bend backwards. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) But then the film just ends. Well, you do get Zira crawling to Cornelius. Yes. yes. Where presumably they die together. Well, the film doesn't quite end because we go back to the circus. This is the first apes film and only it's written with an opening for a sequel. Did they know they were going to do another one? Yes. They did? Okay. They were pretty sure. Because it could have just, the whole thing could end right there. Yeah. I mean, it, and it would still be satisfactory in terms of storytelling because you knew. You knew what was going to happen. You didn't need to have a film. I'm glad they made more because I'm excited to see where it goes. But mm-hmm. did you know when you first saw this that the babies got swapped? Spoiler. When you see. Zira climbing in with a chimpanzee. I thought something was up, but I it it didn't click with me until just after the shooting. My mind thought they I bet she switched them. Mm-hmm. 
on a second viewing, I was particularly paying attention to that, how they, they kind of built up to it. Before the swap, you see Zira trying to get the chimpanzee's baby to say, Mama, Mama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after the switch, she's doing the same thing to who is supposed to be Milo, doing the same thing, trying to get him to say, Mama, Mama. I don't think she ever did that specifically for Milo. I don't think so. No, I think Zira hatched the plan even before Milo was actually born when she saw the um, one in the cage holding the baby up showing her. I think that's when she hatched the plan. And it's it's a little more obvious the next time you see it. Right. Did you know that there was a switch? I suspected the way they kind of did it, and then we never saw the baby close up again. And, you know, just as a storyteller and somebody who watches a lot of movies, I I kind of saw what they were doing there, you know, from a storytelling point of view. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why they didn't show a close-up of the baby again, I guess, you know, and I kind of figured that out. But, you know, even though I think I figured it out, I still questioned, did Cornelius know? I don't think Cornelius knew because – I don't know if he would... Well, Zira had been shot, but I don't think he knew that she was dying. But I think it was the shooting of the baby that allowed him to pull the gun on Hasline. Right. And if he'd known that there was a switch, I don't know if that would have been as powerful enough emotionally for him to do that. So Mm -hmm. I don't think he knew. I don't know. I can see Zira being willing to keep that secret. But that that would be a difficult secret to keep, seeing how close and loving they are. Yeah. They Yeah, they did make plans, you know, once they got away, once they laid low for a while, they were going to come back to the circus. So presumably that's when she was planning on swapping, swapping the back. Babies they were back. Yeah, they were going to meet up with the circus in Florida and live in the Everglades. Hmm. But the, yeah, the end of the film is very powerful, and it's really unexpected. The tone of the first three-fourths of this film is more light, but then it it really kind of turns dark, very dark at the end of the film. Yeah, it takes a pretty severe turn, but where else could you go with it, I guess, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I really do. This is my second favorite, the original one, but this is my second favorite of the Apes films. Really? Uh, yeah. I'm I'm a little more torn. I I like Escape better, but it doesn't stand on its own. You obviously need, you need Planet. Planet of the Apes. Now, I I think we could have gone from Planet of the Apes directly to Escape From. I don't know that we even needed Beneath to yeah, exist. But we need General Ursus. <laughs> Man, I don't know where I come down on it. I mean, I think it's – I think what's interesting is that it's so different mm-hmm. because it's set in contemporary times because it's a different kind of story. It's a different vibe of storytelling. It's not the flat-out science fiction story that it, we had before. We have these elements of – Again, not comedic, but there's this lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. There is a, a strong love story happening here, which he still picked up on a little bit, especially in Planet Between Cornelius and Zero. But still, it's so different, but still enjoyable. I still really liked it. You're having the same reaction that uh, the producer, Arthur Jacobs, had after the film was over uh, when he was asked in an interview in 1971 of why the film wasn't as popular financially as the first two films it wasn't no oh he says uh i've tried to analyze why escape did not do as well as beneath and i think there's three reasons first there was some who were disappointed in the second picture secondly there's not as much science fiction as the others 
And I think that was a letdown for some kids, even though it received better reviews, and I think it's a better film. It was an intimate picture, not a spectacle. And he said, the third reason, I think Fox took the attitude that it was pre-sold and therefore not spending too much money on marketing and selling it. Now, the film did gross about $10 million from its budget of less than $2 million. Yeah, I would agree with his uh, analysis that this is much more of an intimate picture versus the spectacle of, you know, the first film, the discovering the planet of the apes and all the drama and the conflict in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. This was much more scaled down. The conflict was between Zira and Cornelius and Dr. Hazelton, Hasseltine. Hasseline. Hasseline. <laughs> the bad guy. <laughs> so it makes me wonder, uh, was it just a budgetary decision to go in that direction? Because it is so different. But I mean, I still like it. It's still got one hell of a heart. Oh, yeah. Still got heart. What happens next? Watch the movie. Dang! <laughs> ah. This was good. I, You know, I, I'm having a hard time kind of deciding which one I like best so far. I think I'm going to have to wait until I see all five. Then I'll go through and make my decision then. Because it'll be easier with five instead of three movies, I guess. Oh, yeah, but much yeah. easier. <laughs> <laughs> How far in the future between uh, does uh, the next one happen? Like, what's the time period? Or do you not want to tell me that either? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I'm thinking it's... 15, 20 years later. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I assumed Baby Milo grows up. Yes. Okay. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you guys, and this is something that I stumbled across. I did a little bit of looking online, not too much because I don't want to spoil the other movies. In the first two films, don't Cornelius and Zira seem kind of like they don't know what exactly happened to man? Yes. And then in this one, they kind of do. <laughs> yeah, that is a big plot hole that a lot of people... Uh, bring up because in the first couple of films it's only dr Zerus that has access to all the sacred scrolls that tell what really happens so and, and it really there wasn't time for any time for zira excuse me Cornelia. let me get it right here dr zayas to fill them in on what happened unless well, he did it between the first and second films right and i said we don't know how much time and it's been a while since I've seen Beneath. We don't really see much of Cornelius and Zaius and Zira in that film, do we? We see more of Zaius, but uh, Zira and Cornelius are not used that much in that film. They're there, even though Roddy McDowell's not Cornelius. Mm -hmm. But they're they're only in like one, maybe two scenes of the film. So there could be, I mean, if, if Zaius has realized the error of his ways in keeping the sacred knowledge... Separate, he could have been filling in Cornelius. But for what purpose? Okay. Because he obviously doesn't know that the world's going to end. Yeah. Unburdening himself? Maybe. Not that it's that big of a sticking point. I mean, I appreciated getting a little bit more background about what happened. Mm -hmm. And the fact that all the cats and dogs died? Well, that didn't make me happy, of course. But yes. <laughs> I guess smart storytelling and a good way to do it. Yeah, it's logical in, in this environment that I would imagine people would turn to an animal like the chimpanzee to start training. Mm -hmm. What does that say about humanity's need to kind of dominate another animal and make it a pet? Or a companion. You can think of it that way. We're all pet owners here. Yes. <laughs> or, or I'm sorry, we are all uh, fortunate to have animals in our family. Com yes. Companion animals. There we go. There we go. Well, in the case of cats, aren't you pretty much the cat's servants? 
You know, it depends on who you ask, I suppose. Me or the cats. (laughs) (laughs) So you were speaking of dominating. There's, again, an interesting line from Montalban, Armando, where he talks (laughs) about, yes, if mankind is to be dominated, let them be dominated by such as you. And he's saying this while he's down on one knee in front of Zira. <laughs> Slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> just, just a little bit. What kind of circus is this? <laughs> you sure you want to well, leave your kid with this guy? <laughs> yeah. Well, we already know that Zira doesn't thinks that humans are ugly. That's true. That's true. Although she does plan to smooch on Dr. Lewis. You're the second human I've kissed. And I like Cornelius. <laughs> and you're the first woman. <laughs> It's like he's different. I got to keep up with her. It's like, oh, yeah, well, watch what I'm going to do. Yeah. Gives uh, Stevie a big kiss. One thing we haven't talked about, and you mentioned this to me at one point, Scott, when we started talking about the music. Mm hmm. Wow. <laughs> totally different than what we've heard in the previous films. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Especially the actual Planet of the Apes theme that we hear right off the bat over the opening credits. Uh huh. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith did the music for the first film. He wasn't involved in Beneath, but he came back for this film. And he actually took the opportunity to write something completely different from the classic. And, you know, in the classic, he uses all these kind of avant-garde machines and uh, compositions and unusual instruments. Here, he uh, brings in some electric guitar, some steel drum, and some electric sitar for his orchestra. I love it. I absolutely love the theme. Oh, I to love escape. it. Too. I love the music. It's yeah. so fun. It really grounds the film in the contemporary setting. You know, if he if he used the unusual composition and unusual instruments to emphasize the planet of the apes is an alien world, he did the opposite for this film. Yeah. Yeah, th- it sounds like music that uh, is featured here on Monster Kid Radio. That same style. It does have a little bit of a, a surf feel to it, kind of a surf spy moment yep. here and there throughout the whole thing. No, I dug it. I dug it a lot. I could see myself listening to this. In fact, of the three so far, I could see myself listening to this score more than the others. This was the first one not to have a soundtrack release. Are you it, serious? It did not have one until 1997. Wow, that surprises me. There wasn't a, a soundtrack album that came out at the same time. The first two huh. did, but not this one. I wonder if that was another budgetary slash marketing decision that they didn't want to spend the money producing it. But no, this is my favorite. I love the opening theme, uh, the Planet of the Apes theme uh, over the opening credits. Oh, it's good. The whole the whole thing's great. It does end on a downer, of course, but it's yeah. a downer ending. But no, overall, I really enjoyed the score a lot. Do they continue to take chances with the score throughout the rest of the series? Don't tell me to watch a movie. I just want to. <laughs> it's been a while since I've watched the previous two. I know Goldsmith doesn't come back. This was, he only did the two, oh, okay. so I don't remember off the top of my head what the soundtracks are like for the next two. Okay. Well, I know I'm going to go back and watch it again. I know so far all three of them are going to demand rewatches just because oh, yeah. they're so good. Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad you're digging these movies. It's really hard for me to not just binge watch them all <laughs> because I want to. You know, do these one at a time and schedule time with you to court about them after we watch them. This has been a heck of a journey so far. And the twists and the turns, it's keeping me engaged, I'll tell you that. Cool. Like I said, I'm really glad that you're enjoying these. I'm still a little surprised you'd never watch them. 
Me too. You know, and every time the opportunity came up recently, it's like, well, Scott and I are going to talk about it. <laughs> I better wait. Well, Derek, if it makes you feel any better, I don't think I've seen four and five either. Really? Not that I can recall. Well, I mentioned at the beginning of this that ultimately I want to kind of cap this whole series off with like a big roundtable discussion. And I just assumed that you'd be interested in joining us. Uh, is that accurate? Would you like to join us for this big roundtable at the end, Tracy? Sure. Okay. So it means you got to watch the other movies. Yeah. And she she really wants to talk about the Tim Burton version. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've seen that one. <laughs> I have. Seen I regret one. having yeah. seen that one. No, I, the makeup is cool. Yeah. I know you just Indiana folks are big fans of Burton. So, you know, we'll bring it up. Why not? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Well, guys, again, I want to thank you guys for uh, being part of the Planet of the Apes experience for me. Tracy, it was good to have you back on the show. We need thank to make you much. that happen more often. Yes, please. M- miss having you here. And Scott, I'll talk to you. Again, in the very near future, because you are one of the co-hosts of 1951 Down Place with me. And that's slacker, Casey Criswell. With the award-winning podcasters, oh. Derek M. Cook and Casey Criswell. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Do you want me to slap a gold star on your forehead, Scott? <laughs> How much fun was that? This movie. Oh, it's so good. I mean... You think about science fiction franchises today, and I feel like they don't take a lot of risks, at least not the kind of risks that you got in the 70s. I think the 70s was a very risky time in terms of science fiction, just films in general, not just franchises, but films in general. These movies took a lot of risks. I feel like you don't see that nearly as much today. Look, I like Star Wars The Force Awakens quite a bit, as much as many of you, but I also recognize that it didn't take a heck of a lot of risks, but you kind of saw that one coming about 10 to 15 minutes before it actually happened. No spoilers. Anyway, this movie, it just seem to recycle a lot of the old mythology from the previous films. And that's okay. These giant epic stories, these mythical stories, they're cyclical. So they are going to kind of feed off of one another. With the apes films, I feel like they are just all over the map in a very, very good way. I have some continuity issues a little bit, and I suspect I'm going to continue to have these continuity issues through the rest of the film franchise. But It's not enough to take me out of the experience. These movies are great. I cannot wait to get to the next one with Scott in the future. Hopefully in the near future. Now, the biggest, the newest, the most exciting of all the Planet of the Apes pictures. Climaxed by the spectacular revolt of the apes. The most awesome, the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction. First pampered as pets, then abused as servants, now oppressed as slaves. security forces, police, militia, and reserve defense units. See that every entrance into the city is cordoned off immediately. Yes, sir. Our control methods to include the use of tear gas and sedation darts. There will be but one control method. Shoot to kill. Civilization and the world will belong to a planet of apes!
Watch the screen explode as man faces ape in the ultimate revolution. Where there is fire, there is smoke. In that smoke, from this day forward, my people will plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! for listening and thank you for being part of the show make no mistake you listening there you're part of this experience so thank you for being part of monster kid radio i appreciate all the support i appreciate all the shares on facebook i appreciate all the retweeting of the tweets as well as all the votes in the itunes store thank you for everybody coming along for the ride if you want to know anything about Monster Kid Radio between episodes, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to want to go. This is where you're going to find that contact information I mentioned earlier. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657, 503-4795-MKR. Also from here, you'll find a link to our Facebook group, a list of every song that's appeared here on the show. If you are a local, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, there's a good chance you might run into me if you... Happen to go to Wizard World. It's happening February 19th, 20th, and 21st. And I think I'm going at least one day. It might be the 20th. You know, I'm not 100% sure yet. Could be Saturday. Could be Sunday. I'll post about it on Facebook once I figure it out. Is there a lot of Monster Kid content here? Well, Elvira's on the guest list. So she's going to be there. Am I going to get any FaceTime with her? I don't know. I have met her before. She's pretty cool. I'll definitely have my recorder along. So maybe I'll get some content there. If you're going to be there, let me know. Look me up. I'd love to meet you. Also, kind of looking ahead... March 26th here in Portland at the East Portland Eagle Lodge is the Frankenstein's comic book swap. I've never been to this, but I've always wanted to go. It's like a dollar to get in. Go to frankensteinscomicbookswap.com to learn a little bit more about that. And then, of course, Scott mentioned the Fathom events, bringing Planet of the Apes back to the big screen. That's going to be happening here in the Portland area. And yeah, I'm going. And yeah, I would love to do a Monster Kid Radio fan gathering, an event of some sort, get people together and go see this movie as a group. That's coming up at the end of July. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, the good doctor is back. Dr. Gain Green, Larry Underwood, he's coming back to Monster Kid Radio. And we're going to talk about one of his favorite anthology films. I don't think it's any secret to anybody who knows him. He loves the films of Amicus. I'm a hammer guy through and through. He loves 
Amicus. He loves anthology films, and we're going to talk about one of his favorite next week. We're going to be talking about Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. House of Horrors. Horrors the screen has never before dared to depict. The terrifying horror of man killing vine with a human brain that creeps and kills. The terrifying horror of the dead, entombed for 200 years, that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror, who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Why are we talking about an anthology with Larry Underwood next week? Well, you're going to have to tune in to find out why. And yeah, I know the B-Movie cast just covered this movie. Great minds think alike, right? So come back for that for episode 256 for some Dr. Gain Green, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Amicus Goodness. And future episodes, I've got a lot of things planned. I've got a few episodes already recorded. I just need to edit them and put them out in the feed. We've got Tony Wendell coming back. I've got something planned with Rich Chamberlain, you know, the monster movie kid. Also, I've reached out to author Justin McCumber. He's talking about coming on the show to talk about, well, one of the classics. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, though. You know how you can find out more about what's coming up on Monster Kid Radio? Subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio Gazette. This is the monthly e-newsletter that you can find over at monsterkidradio.net over on the right beneath the Rondo Hatton. You'll see where you can put in your email address. Do that, hit subscribe, and you're in. Once a month, typically near the end of the month, I'm going to be putting out an email newsletter, and yeah, there will be one coming out this month. I got one final piece of artwork in that I was waiting for to make that happen. Shelby Denham struck again. The artwork's cool and the newsletter's just going to be a lot of fun. Go subscribe to that. I want to thank everybody for being part of the Monster Kid Radio listening experience. Without you, well, I'm just a crazy guy talking into a microphone about some movies that most people really don't really watch anymore. So thanks for making me feel not so crazy. This really went to a weird place. Let's wrap up. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Peeping Bond. That belongs to the band The Shadow Waves. It's from their album Waves of Absolute Space Fire. You can find them at theshadowwaves.bandcamp.com. Again, Shadow Waves is one word, only one W in there. I really dig this album. And I'm glad that Peeping Bond appears on Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Talk to everybody next week. Mm-hmm.